Well, it's good to see you. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and uh, I'm excited for us to conclude what has been a great uh, teaching series for us. We focused the last couple of weeks on asking God to help shift and, and, and change our view of money, what, how we view and what we do with what's been entrusted to you. And we are uh, learning a ton from the Bible, and today we're actually going to face what is honestly one of my biggest fears. Like This is a, a sermon I need to hear myself over and over and over again, and it's the fear uh, that I'm not going to have enough. It's the fear that I don't currently have enough, and I'm not going to have enough, and I don't know if God's going to do anything about that. That's a deep fear for me, and maybe you can relate to that. We're going to hear some uh, really profound, simple but profound teaching from the Bible. I think God wants you to speak right in that. If, if not for you, then maybe just for me uh, as we hear that today. And as John mentioned, we are actually um, seeing God do some really, really cool things in our church over the course of the last couple of weeks. John mentioned that we're not actually receiving an offering. We're not going to pass the bucket. And I want to explain to you why. We don't want it to be confusing that when we talk about money, that that's all we're trying to do is get your money out of you. It's not at all what this is about at all. This is so much bigger than that. So we're not passing a bucket during this teaching series. Uh, but I know that some folks like love to give that way. Like you love, you have your special envelope that you use and write your check out and that's how you love to give. That's awesome. We're not going to do the buckets, but like if that's you in the back, actually, before you leave the gathering today, uh, there's some wicker baskets in the back. I believe we bought them at Pier 1. Uh, we're teaching about money. We're trying to be wise, if not cheap. And so those are uh, in the back. And so you can do that if you want to. But we're actually really pushing our church and encouraging our church to do more than just sort of drop some money in the bucket. We're actually uh, teaching from God's word and talking about what it means for us to be a giver. What does it mean for us to be a joyful, consistent giver? Not a, a gripper, which, you know, some of us, we've all seen that, where you tried really hard to hold on to your stuff. We're going to talk about that today. Not to be a tipper, where you just sort of put whatever God's put in your wallet in the bucket, but to be a, a giver, a real giver that says, no, I, I, I'm going to put what God has put in my heart. I'm going to give that faithfully and consistently. And so we gave a challenge at the beginning of our series where we said, look, what if for 90 days... You just did it. You just did the thing you wanted to do or you've thought about doing or you've put off doing. What if you gave back to God for 90 days, joyfully and consistently, you set a percentage aside and you did it. And I want to let you know some really cool news. It's been really fun to see what God has done. So we gave a 90-day challenge. We told people to text in if they wanted to do that. All the information is on our website at soulcitychurch.com giving. Do you know how many people texted in and signed up for our 90-day giving challenge? We had 333 people from our church, 333, all signed up. Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. And said, listen, we, we want to see what God is going to do as we faithfully give back to him. And here's what we've said. If at the end of 90 days, you give joyfully and faithfully and consistently to God, consistently to God and you haven't seen God change your perspective on your stuff, if you haven't seen and become more aware of God's blessing in your life and you get to the end of 90 days and you want to stop, go for it. That's between you and God. We just want to help you start. And so it's been so cool to see how many folks are getting started in a lifetime of giving back to God. And we even said last week, we talked about uh, the percentages kind of thing, about 10, 10, 80, how we give our first and best to God, then we save for tomorrow, and then we live off of the rest. And I said then, and I'll say it again today, th this is not a financial seminar, all right? This is not a financial seminar. We're not going to walk through those things, but we actually have a great resource for you that's actually this Saturday, and it's our budget boot camp. 
And it's here at the church. It's taught by volunteers from our church, amazing folks who get this stuff inside and out and teach principles from the Bible, but get down into the nitty gritty of your resources. And I just want to let you know, that thing's filled up. It's filling up. There's a few uh, spots left. And if we have to, we'll add another one. But we want you to have access to this really incredible resource. Uh, so that's actually this Saturday, our budget boot camp, because we want to do whatever we can do to help you live free when it comes to your money and not freaked out when it comes to your money. So that's some of the fun stuff that's going on around the exchange series. John asked the question a little bit ago about losing your wallet or having it stolen. I am someone who fits into both categories. I have lost my wallet several times. I've had it stolen twice before. I've actually had it lost and stolen at the same time. Like I've kind of covered all the categories there. In fact, um, when I was actually living in Atlanta a couple years ago, we, uh, I'd gone to see a movie and I was coming back home and I realized I hadn't done uh, the double pat before I left the movie theater, which is the guys can just do that and it's okay. And so we, I, I, I went, you know, is your keys wallet? And so I didn't do the double pat. And so I got in the car and I was almost home and I realized, oh my gosh, I don't have my wallet. And I was like, oh, I bet it slipped out in the movie theater. Doggone it. So turned around, didn't even get home, turned around, went back to the movie theater. It only been 15 minutes. So I'm like, I'll just go in. Hopefully the next movie hasn't started because that's going to be really awkward if it has. And so hopefully that hasn't started. And so I get in there and, and it hasn't started yet. And so I'm like, hey, can you let me in there? And I, I need to see. And so I go to the row where I was sitting and I get down on my hands and knees and I'm crawling around on the floor of the movie theater, which is not a floor you want to crawl around on. Let me just say that right now. Not a floor you want to be crawling around on, but it was my wallet. And so I'm looking and looking around, hoping to find it. I actually asked them to turn all the lights on. And so that, you know, you never see movie theaters like that. And so lights are on and I'm looking around I'm finding all kinds of other stuff. Can't find my wallet. And then that feeling starts to, to grow in me. You've maybe had that feeling where it's like, someone's got my stuff. Someone's got my stuff. And I started to get really frustrated. I'm like, I don't know where it is. And so I started calling the credit card company. I was like, hey, you need to cancel my credit cards immediately. Someone stole my wallet. And within 20 minutes from when I realized I lost it, they had spent $350 at CVS. <laughs> You got to want to spend $350 if you're shopping at CVS. That's a lot of Huggies and year-old candy that they were buying at CVS. And then they got to the, the, this gas station. They filled up their car, and they were buying a bunch of food at the gas station. And my call had just gotten through the credit card company, and they stopped it right as they were trying to pay. And it freaked them out so much, they just left my wallet on the counter and ran out. And so I got it back. They called me and said, hey, we, after about an hour, we've got your wallet. Will you come and get it? And so I'm like, oh my gosh, that saves uh, still a hassle, but saves a ton of work. And so I drove over there and felt so relieved. But then another feeling began to sit me like, someone else has touched my wallet. <laughs> like someone else has held this thing and it's mine. And I don't like how that feels. It's a very, very strong emotion to know. I feel it's kind of violated. I feel like someone's kind of taken something that's mine. They didn't. And all this kind of fear began to stir up in me over this little accessory. It's amazing when you stop and think about the power that this little accessory has on our lives, how it can stir such deep emotions so quickly to stop and think about how hard I work for this and how much I worry about this. And all that gets unearthed when I lose my grip on it or when someone else has it. All that fear starts to kick up. 
And to kind of help you see, maybe you know that feeling you've experienced or maybe you haven't. I want to help you actually realize just how strong the grip is that this little accessory has on your life. So here's what I ask you to do. And I want you to really trust me on this one. I'm going to ask you right now to pull out your wallet or purse. Again, your first time here, you're like, see, this is what it was all coming down to. All right, listen, pull out your wallet or purse or money clip or paper clip, depending on how you do this. You have a highly advanced system that you believe works, whatever it is. Go ahead, and I want everyone to pull out. This only works if everyone pulls out their wallet or their purse or whatever you're holding your cards and cash in. And I want you to get how much of a grip and how much weight this little accessory has on your life. All right, so if you have that, everyone have that out? Okay, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, and I really want you to trust me on this. I want you to hand it to the person on your left. And I want them to hold on to that for you. And if you're sitting all the way on the left, hand it to a person behind you. Someone else needs to hold on to your wallet or your purse or your clip. No, I'm not like, get up across the aisles or do whatever you gotta do. And Neil, don't hold on to that, hand it to him. Pass it around, I want someone else to hold on to this. And I want you to hold on to it for real right now. You might wanna give them a second look, check them out real quick. Now you remember back to the story they told a minute ago when we did the interaction. What did they do when they lost their stuff? Okay. I want you to hold on for the second, see how this feels. You know, I, I know I said this a minute ago. I said we weren't going to receive an offering. But I feel like, it feels like this is the right time. I want you to give like you've never given before. We're going to keep passing the, we'll pass the baskets around. We'll do whatever we have to do. I want you to give. All right, so I want you to think about this, this feeling, right? This, this makes maybe this make you feel a little nervous or maybe you handed yours to your spouse. You're like, I know how, all too well how this feels, right? <laughs> we don't like when someone else gets a grip on what we think is ours. It stirs up all kinds of fear in us. And we begin to realize maybe for the first time how much power this little accessory has in our lives and over our hearts. So... You don't freak out anymore. You can go ahead and hand the person back their wallet or their purse. Go ahead and do it. And I suppose I should say, if you need to count it, go ahead and count it just to make sure it's all there. I know we're in church, but let's just be honest. All right, that, that feeling, that, that fear that gets stirred up in all of us at some level, whether you've lost your wallet or purse, or maybe for you, you've uh, lost a job and your source of income went away. That feeling that you immediately feel or maybe you've had an investment go south. You invested a lot of time or a lot of money. You started a business and you invested everything into it and it failed. Maybe you've gone through a divorce and half of your life that you built up went away in a moment, in an instant. We all know that feeling, don't we? When something that we thought was ours is now in someone else's hands or is out there somewhere else, it stirs up this fear in us. And that fear is ultimately rooted in this idea called scarcity. Scarcity. And I want to just camp out on that idea for a second because the, the, it's a kind of a fundamental sort of worldview that a lot of us have without even realizing we have it. Scarcity is sort of the, the view that my resources, my financial resources are limited. The scarcity tells me that my resources, what I have, is limited. And not only that, but it's diminishing. That's the fundamental belief about scarcity, is that there is not enough and there's only going to be less. 
And so what that leads us to do is grab as much as we can while we can and hold on to it as tight as we can. That's what scarcity believes. There's not enough and there's only going to be less and less and less. So I better get what I can while I can and hold on to it as tight as I can. And we live in a culture that fully perpetuates the belief of scarcity. It has led to unbelievable, careless consumerism and debilitating debt, purchases that were made out of fear instead of wisdom, investments that were made out of a a sense of uncertainty, and so we try and lock down as much as we can while we can. This is what scarcity is really all about. And and we live in a culture that, that honestly sort of produces, for lack of a better word, high-functioning fearaholics. We live in a culture that produces high-functioning fearaholics and actually sort of has created a culturally acceptable level of anxiety that most people live with when it comes to their resources. This is scarcity, that I'm not going to have enough, there won't be enough, so I need to get as much as I can while I can. Scarcity tells me that I will always have less than I really want, even though I actually have more than I really need. This is at the root of this worldview called scarcity. I will always have less than I want, even though I already have more than I really actually need. Let me show you what I mean. If you make $25,000 or more a year. So if you make $25,000 or more a year, do you know what the reality is? You are in the top 2% of income earners globally. So just real quick, I don't know how you felt when you walked in these doors today. If you walked in feeling like you were part of the 1%, if you walked in feeling like you were rich, the reality is if you earn more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 2% of income earners globally right now in the world we live in. Here's something. If you earn more than $50,000 a year, you actually are in the top 0.3% of income earners globally in our world right now today. In fact, all this uh, you can find actually on the Global Rich List. It's a website that I highly recommend you going to so that you can get incredibly depressed. (laughs) Because... Scarcity says, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I don't have enough. I'm never going to have enough. I don't have as much as them. I don't have as much as them. It says that I will never have enough when in reality, I already have more than I actually need. And that fear can drive us to some pretty crazy places. Listen, if, if when you woke up today, and I, don't, I don't know if you woke up today feeling rich, but if you woke up today and, and, and you had more than five options for what to wear today, in your closet, I mean, if you, if you have a closet, okay, if, if, if you actually have, if you walked into, a, if you walked into a room that you built for your clothes, where your clothes get to live, you have easily twice as much as most people in the world right now today. If you didn't have to walk here today, then you already actually have way more than you may even realize, quite possibly way more than you even need. Scarcity says you're never going to have enough. Reality says you actually have more than you even realize. And so it's a huge perspective shift 
for us, to allow God to even speak into that fear. And let me just push in a little bit deeper if I can. We're about to open up the Bible and have God speak directly to our hearts from this, but let me just push in before we do, because I want to even take it to a little bit of a deeper level, because my hunch is about you. The reason you're here today or you're watching this online or listening to the podcast, here's my hunch. Here's what, an assumption I can make about you is that at the very least, you are interested in God. You wouldn't be wasting your time here if you weren't. You are at the very least interested in God. My hunch is, in fact, though, you're actually invested in a relationship with God. You are pursuing at some level a relationship with God. And so this thing goes even deeper than for those of us who are at the very least interested, if not invested in the relationship with God, is we actually have to ask the question, how does God feel about this? And what would God say about this to me? Because see, it's one thing for us to, to come here every week and, and to sing these beautiful songs. We have such amazing music at Soul City Church. And to sing these amazing songs that declare the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. And you can download those songs and you can listen to them on your commute and you can listen to them all throughout the week. And you can come here every week and hear really, really wise and deep and profound sermons, remarkable world-class sermons every week here. <laughs> all about God's faithfulness and his goodness and his character, you can take all those things in and still at the core of who you are, doubt his faithfulness and goodness in your life. And so the question that for all of us who are at the very least interested, if not invested in a relationship with God, have to settle as we come to God with our stuff, our finances and our fears and everything in between, is simply this, do I trust, not just believe, not just have I heard, but do I trust that the Lord of all has enough for me? Do I trust, do you trust that the Lord of all that we sing about, that we hear about, that we're about to read about, do I trust that the Lord of all has enough for me today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life with him? Do I trust that the Lord of all has enough for me, that he is good and he is actually for me, for you? Or are you just another victim of scarcity, struggling and striving to get as much as you can while you can and hold on to it as tight as you can? So I want us to look at what Jesus would say to you and me and all of our fears and our finances and all that. He speaks, not surprisingly, directly into the heart of who God is and, and also who we are. And I hope this is a very simple truth we're going to look at. I hope it is a liberating and transforming truth for you as you move forward in a relationship with God. So I'm going to have you grab a Bible and open up to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And if you got it, Bible with you, great. Got it on your phone, fantastic. If you don't, we've got you covered. Would you grab a Bible? Actually, there should be one in your seat back, a blue Bible there or under the seat in front of you. You can grab a blue Bible. And the blue Bible, Matthew 6, is found on page 679, just so you can get there a little quicker, page 679. Grab a pen. We're going to circle some words. And I'm going to pause here in a minute. And, and as I'm reading through some of these words, when I pause, I want you to speak back what that word is. That's going to help you uh, know. And so you can circle that. So make sure you're ready for that so we don't just awkwardly stand here staring at each other. So that's what we're going to get to. Let me give you some context on Matthew chapter 6 as we open up there together. This is actually right in the middle of one of the, the most famous sermon in all of human history. This is right smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. 
This is right towards the beginning of Jesus' public ministry where he was attracting large crowds. People were fascinated by this man, his teaching, the life that he lived, the miracles that he performed. And so they'd gather, and from time to time, Jesus would stop and he would teach to the crowd. Well, this is the most famous sermon of all time. And right in the middle of it, in chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, I'd never noticed this until I was studying and preparing for our time here this weekend. Jesus speaks right to all the stuff we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. In a couple minutes, Jesus basically does a whole teaching series on finances and fear in our heart. It takes me three weeks. He did it in a couple minutes. But he speaks right to it. In fact, I want to break down what he said in Matthew 6, leading up to what we're going to look at here today. First of all, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus talks right away about giving and the heart we should have when we give to others, where a heart should be when we do that. Matthew 6, 5 through 15 talks about how we put God first at the very center of our lives. How does that work? What does that look like? How do we even pray and approach God to put him at the center of our lives? Verses 16 through 18 talk about fasting and loosening the grip of our stuff. This very important spiritual practice of fasting. Many of you started fasting a couple weeks ago for Lent and have maybe forgotten by now, but you started, and that's important. And Jesus talks about how significant that is and how when we do that, what our heart should be about letting go of the grip that some of our stuff has on us. Verses 19 through 24 talk about how we invest into the things of God and how at the end of the day, we cannot serve both God and money. We have to choose who's going to be at the center of our lives. And that all leads up to what I want us to look at here today, and that's Matthew 6, 25. And I love what Jesus is going to say and speak right into our hearts here today. So let's read this together, Matthew 6, 25. After all of this, Jesus speaking so eloquently and profoundly and beautifully into our hearts and our fears and our finances, he says this, so therefore I tell you, do not, what's the word? Do not worry. You might want to circle that. You may have a friend who worries about things. I'll share this with them later. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body. Now listen, just hit pause. Jesus just told you not to worry about your body. Praise Jesus. You heard it in church. You don't have to worry about your body anymore. Keep on getting through winter however you need to get through it. That's not the point at all, actually, he's making. He says, don't worry about your body or or what you're going to wear. He says, isn't life, now listen, listen to this, is not life more than just food and the body more than just clothes? In other words, isn't Isn't life so much more than our sort of constant consumption and consumerism? Jesus is saying, there's more to it than that. You know this. You already know this. That the things in life that God speaks into, that God cares about, are so much more valuable than the things that we tend to value. Life itself is so much more valuable than the things that we tend to value. Verse 26, Jesus says, now look, I want you to pay attention. He says, I want you to look to the birds of the air. Last week we looked at ants. This week we're looking at birds. It's like a third grade field trip around here, but stay with it because in these seemingly insignificant things, there's deep spiritual truth. Jesus says, I want you to look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now look at this. Are you not much more, what's the word there? valuable than they. He says, look, just pay attention. Go outside 
And look at the birds flying by. Like they, they, they don't have like a 401k set up. They're not diversifying their investments. But God provides for them every single day. Every day he provides exactly what they need. And Jesus says, don't, do, you th- do you think you matter more to God than birds? Do you think you're a little bit more valuable to God than birds? Now I know for the animal lovers who are listening to this right now, it's not that God doesn't love birds. It's that he hates cats. And I just want to be really clear about that if you don't get anything from church today. It's in the Bible and you should read your Bible more. So, no, it's not even about that. It's like, yes, of course God loves birds and of course he cares for them. How much more do you think he cares for you? How much more do you think he cares for you? Now look what Jesus says in verse 27. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Think about that for a second. I want you to think about the things that you worry about, the things that you're anxious about right now. It's the things that you were already thinking about when you walked in here today. It's the things you've been thinking about while I've been talking. Is all of that worry, has all of that worry added anything to your life other than more worry? Has all of your worrying added anything valuable to your life other than more worry and fear and anxiety? Jesus says, look, I don't want you to waste your life worrying about things that are already beyond your control. Life is so much more valuable than that. And you have a heavenly father who loves you and cares for you. In fact, look at verse 28. Jesus says, look, why do you even, why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field? See how they grow? They don't labor or spin. They don't do anything. They're taken care of. Who are they taken care of by? I tell you that even Solomon, this is the, the richest, the wealthiest and wisest king in all of human history, that even Solomon in all his splendor wasn't even dressed like one of these. Not even Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't as beautiful as a single flower. Now, this is obviously written 2,000 years ago. Jesus said these words 2,000 years ago before uh, this winter that we've been experiencing in Chicago. So what I want you to do for a second is try and remember, if you can, what a flower looks like. (laughs) Green on the bottom, pretty on the top. Some of them smell nice. Jesus says, you know that other seemingly insignificant thing that you walk past every day? Who do you think takes care of that? What what does it do to earn its keep? What does a flower do to earn its keep? What does a flower do for itself other than receive what is given to it? Jesus says, look, even flowers, as simple as they are, are more beautiful than Solomon ever was. Verse 30. If that is how... God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown in the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? If that's how God takes care of a flower, which is here today and gone tomorrow, don't you think he cares about you more than he does flowers? And then Jesus says a phrase that at first can seem a little offensive, a little off-putting. He says, you of little faith. You ever heard that phrase before? Oh, ye of little faith, you of little faith. At first, it can feel like, man, Jesus, wow, you barely know me, and you're already like, attacking me. What does that mean? 
It's actually not a condemning phrase at all. In the original language that Jesus spoke it, actually what it is, is it's an endearing term. It's not about you lacking faith. It's a term used or a phrase used, a turn of a phrase to speak to a child, a little one. So you have to imagine Jesus saying, don't you think that he'll take that much more care of you, oh little one, oh my child, my one who is young in faith. Let me help you grow up. Let me give you wisdom that will transform your life. You have a God who loves you and cares for you. And you can see his extravagant love on display through some of the most seemingly insignificant things in the everyday world around you. Will you not look for it in your life? Will you not see the hand of a good and generous God in your life? So Jesus goes on to say this in verse 31. So in summing up, in conclusion, don't worry. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. Pagans meaning those who aren't interested in God or aren't invested in a relationship with God. They run after these things. We live in a world that runs after all of these things that we believe we have to get because there's not going to be enough. And so we get as much while we can and hold on to it as tight as we can for as long as we can. Our world runs after all of those things. But your heavenly father knows that you what? Need them. You don't have to run after them and try and secure them for yourself because your heavenly father knows that you actually need them and he will take care of your needs. See, what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, listen, I don't want you to worry. You don't have to worry about these things. That's not going to add anything to your life. Rather than worry, I, you, you, I would rather you live in wonder about how God is going to make it all happen and where God is going to bring his blessing and his goodness from. In other words, there's a huge difference between us wondering how God is going to come through or what his provision will look like in our life. Very different thing to wonder than it is to worry. Huge difference, in fact. Wondering simply is an open attentiveness to God. I can wonder and say, I am openly attentive, God. I really don't know how you're going to provide. I look ahead, God, and I don't see it adding up. I wonder how you're going to do this. I am looking to you to see what you are going to do. I have an open attentiveness. You know who's great at wonder? Kids. They have an open attentiveness. They just see everyday things like, oh, that's the most amazing thing ever. They are filled with open attentiveness, open possibilities. It is completely okay to wonder. Say, God, I don't know how this is, I don't know how this is gonna work, but I am openly attentive to what you are going to do. Wonder is one thing, worry is another. Worry is not an open attentiveness, it's an obsessive anxiousness. It's not saying, God, I can't wait to see what you are going to do. It's saying, I have to do whatever I have to do. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to take care of myself because my fundamental worldview is scarcity. There's not enough and there's only going to be less. See, do you see the difference between the two? It is actually right and good to wonder and say, God, how is this going to work? God, show me your ways. God, show me your hand and provision. Very, very, very different thing to worry one leads to God, the other only leads to more fear. So Jesus says this, verse 33. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to seek 
first God's kingdom and his righteousness, his way, his rule over your life. You seek that first. You don't try and make all the ends meet. You start with God at the center. You say, God, I want to seek you first, your way, your righteousness. And this is what's so interesting. And some of these things might be taken care of for you. Is that what Jesus says? He says, no, you start with God in the center and all these things, all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen? Each day has enough intensity, enough complexity, enough challenges than for you to waste your days worrying about what is beyond your control. Seek first. Put God at the very center and see what he does. Don't worry. Don't be sort of obsessively anxious about that. You can wonder. You can say, God, what is it that you're going to do? I don't see how you're going to do it. God, here's what I need, and here's the beautiful thing. God says, I already know what you need, and I have always, and I will always provide you with just what you need, because I am a good and loving heavenly Father. So Jesus is boiling down here in this beautiful teaching. I didn't see the complexity of it ever before until this last week in Matthew 6. What Jesus is driving in on, and honestly, ultimately, what just about every single teaching that Jesus offers about who God is and who we are, the very life of Jesus itself is proving this one point again and again and again. And it's a question each of us has to wrestle with if we're interested in God or invested in a relationship with him. We have to settle this in our soul. And it's simply this. If God is enough for me, if I can settle that, then God has enough for me. If God is, if I can settle in my soul that God is enough for me, that I can trust him, I can trust his ways, I'm going to put him at the center. If I say, God, it's not even about putting you first because I know if I put you first, it's only a matter of time until I slide you to second, third, fourth, fifth. I'm gonna put you at the center of all things, God, the center of my life, the center of my finances. If I can fundamentally believe and settle in my soul that God is enough for me, then that settles whether or not God has enough for me. If he is enough for me, then he has enough for me. Again, this is one of my core fears, a thing I have to do work with God with on a regular basis. My parents told me when I was a little kid around the age three or four years old and we would all sit at the table. I had five, so there were five kids in my family, four other siblings. I was the youngest. I ate every meal with my arm around my plate. This is how I grew up, eating like this. One, because I thought they were gonna take my food or two, they were gonna hit me so I could block. I had a couple, I had a couple moves that I could do here. It's a core thing. I gotta get what I can get while I can get it and hold on to it as tight as I can. This is a core thing for me. God, do I really believe that you are enough and that you have enough for me. If I can settle in my soul that you're enough, then I can rest and go about my life in peace, that you will always have enough for me. 
and that I don't have to worry or be obsessively anxious about anything. This, for me, is why I'm doing the fast that I'm doing for Lent right now. As we prepare for Easter and draw, and I focus my heart on what's coming on Easter in just a few weeks. Many of you may be fasting or have given something up for Lent. For me, what I knew it needed to be was I needed to give up fast, let go of buying anything new for myself for those 40 days, not to buy anything new for myself, any clothes, gadgets, headphones, a seventh pair of sunglasses. Like I just, I'm not going to buy anything. And because I know my tendency to try and satisfy my belief in scarcity with more stuff, I actually went through my closet and drawers and cleared out about half of what I own and gave it to folks who really need it. Not because I'm awesome, but because this is such an issue for me. To just say, okay, I, I have to like back myself into a corner to say, do I really believe you're enough, God? Because if I can settle that in my soul, guess what I can face today and tomorrow? I can face that you're going to have enough for me. My circumstances are going to tell me otherwise. My fear of scarcity is going to tell me I won't have what I want, even though I actually have way more than I need. And so, God, I'm going to trust you're enough. And if you're enough, then you will have enough for me. This is a paradigm shift in how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view our stuff. And I want to give you a snapshot, a picture of of what that really looks like by inviting a friend of mine up to tell a little bit of his story and how he's worked out that fundamental question about God being enough in his life. So would you welcome up my friend Jade to the stage right now? So this, I love Jade. Jade has been a friend and a part of this church since before this church actually even existed. You know, it's so fun when we set up our little like website and our church, you know, thing. The very first email we ever got was from Jade. And I, I, we didn't know if you were a scam, if you were real, if you had a Nigerian uncle, prince, <laughs> which you actually do. I know. But we had to make sure you weren't just trying to get money for him. And so like, and what's so amazing is that Jade has been a part of this church since before day one and has faithfully prayed this church into existence and carries this church every single week on his knees in prayer. You may not know Jade, but he has prayed for you. And I, what I love is not only you, a man of faith that I respect and I look up to, but you have your own story of settling that question. Do I believe that God is enough? And so I'd love for you to share just briefly, when was it that that kind of hit the wall for you of do I really believe that God is enough for me? Yeah, Jared, uh, about a year and a half ago, I found myself uh, in this season without a job. I'd gone through school, spent 18 years of my life, you know, working towards getting degrees that I thought would launch me into a successful career. And there was... Um, feeling confused and, and just wondering where God was. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm being honest, I think, I think that I had this dream, this lifestyle of, you know, the type of place that I want to live in, you know, the type mm-hmm. of cars I wanted to drive. And uh, that dream was slowly slipping through my fingers. Mm-hmm. Um, that I actually got to a point where I was asking, ah, will I be able to afford a place to live? Will I be able to put food on the table? Yeah. It was uh, a very trying season. Yeah, and it went on for how long? This wasn't a couple weeks. This This was several months, Jerry. Yeah, I mean, this was a significant part of a year where you were waiting and wondering, okay, I did everything I can do now. Where's kind of the next step? And it just didn't seem like it was coming for you at all. And I know for you there was kind of a a turning point with God, and it didn't happen in an instant, but there were a couple things that happened where you began to say, okay, despite all my fears of scarcity and will there be enough and will I have enough, 
that God began to change and grow something in you. Why don't you share what that was, how that happened? Yeah, um, so, I mean, absolutely journeying through this season of just waiting and so much challenge. Um, God was faithful. He provided a great job for me. And uh, on top of that, he used um, this church community to provide um, in financial ways to help me become debt-free. Um, it was so, so powerful. And in the midst of not having a job or an income, you became debt-free? Yes. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And I know for you, God led you to a specific story. We've talked about this a lot before. In the Bible, led you kind of through life and kind of a breakthrough as you walked through that. Do you remember what that was? Yeah. Um, so in that season of waiting, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon. I was, I was reading through the book of Job. Um, Which you could relate to, the book of Job <laughs> yeah. at that time. Yeah. I mean, naturally, I just began counting my losses. And, you know, I was mm. saying to myself, I was like, God, I have no job. I have no money. Um, I'd lost a lot of my personal possessions. I, I was losing relationships. Mm. And uh, so in that process of lamenting to God, he began to reveal to me that I had been finding my sense of worth and identity mm. in the things that I had on the mm. things that I wanted to have. Mm. Um, but rather, he wanted me to find my identity in Jesus um, mm. to find my source of joy um, and value in God. And, and that mm. was such a life-changing moment for me. Mm. And uh, I mean, if I'm being honest, there's still a temptation to let my job or the clothes that I wear, you know, the places I travel to define right. who I am. Right. Um, but I remind myself of that place of nothingness when I had nothing mm. and the joy and the freedom that mm. I felt. It was so powerful, Jared. Mm. And, uh, and, and I remind myself that who God says I am, that's enough. Mm. Um, there's a song that we sing here um, and the words say, Christ is enough for me and everything I need is in him. And uh, a couple of years ago, I'd probably sing a song like that and, and just scoff at the words and be like, God, really? Mm. Um, but today I know that God will provide for my every need, um, but he's already provided something greater than anything I'll ever need, and that's Jesus, and, mm. and that's enough. I love it. Can we thank you, Dave? I'll never forget um, being over where Jade was living with a group of guys, and this was in the dark time. It was hard. I mean, here's this guy who's praying for our church, but really asking some big questions to God and about God's character. And we went there to kind of celebrate and, you know, encourage today. And I went into his room and written all over the walls of his room were verses from the Bible, like literally written onto the wall. And he kind of just like looked past, you know, the rental fee that he'd have to like repaint his walls and just said, I need to surround myself with the promises and the truth of who God is and who I am in him. And just had those written around his room. And I just remember walking in going, God, I need that too. I, I need to have literally written on the walls of my life, the door frames that I walk through at work, at home, wherever, the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the truth that he ultimately is enough for me. And if he is enough for me, even when I may not have what I want or what I thought I was entitled to or where I thought I'd be, if he is enough, then I will always have enough from him. A huge shift. I think a lot of us can spend a lot of our lives pursuing the elusive dream of comfort. If I could just get this much, if I could just work a little further and get a little further, if I could just acquire this, we could just get this size house, then I'd be comfortable, then it would be enough. 
And there's very little in the Bible that speaks to that as a noble pursuit. But what God does talk about again and again, and what Jesus is teaching us here today, is that I can be, even in the midst of my pursuit of comfort, I can actually be content right where I am in God. I can be content, grateful for what he's provided, aware of his goodness in my life, and totally at peace, even if it all doesn't add up around me. Fundamental paradigm shift. And so what we want to do for the next few moments is just take a second to stop, to reflect on, do I really believe that he's enough? And then to respond to him with our lives. To just stop and say, okay, but, but for real, do I really think he's enough? And I, you may be like, uh, you know, saying, I'm not that good at praying. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to like reflect on this kind of stuff. Here's the deal. If you've ever worried about something before in your life, you're great at praying. You've just been praying in the wrong direction. And so what we want to help you do is to focus your attention on God today and say, God, do I really believe you are enough? And so maybe for these next few moments, what you need to do is just stop and name those fears. God, I actually don't think you're enough right now in my life. I'm adding all the numbers up in my head, God. I don't think you're enough. And so I'm just going to confess that so we can be honest with each other, God. And I want to believe today that you are. Maybe for you, what you need to do is walk through and go, I just need to make a mental list of all the things I'm grateful for. I found in my life that nothing curbs my sense of entitlement better than a spirit of gratitude. To just say, I, God, thank you, thank you, my God, thank you, thank you, thank you. And so maybe over just the next moment when I'm done praying here, you just need to make a mental list and walk through the things you're grateful for. Maybe for you, it'll require you taking a step, maybe like a fast, like the one I know I need to be on right now, or maybe it's going to the budget boot camp this Saturday saying, you know what, enough. I want to put him at the very center. Or maybe it's the giving thing where you're like, God, I've, I've kind of put you at the center, but I've kept you a little off center when it comes to trusting you by giving back to you. And so maybe you need to resolve in your heart right now today, I'm going to take that next step with God that I've been putting off for a while now because I don't want to waste another day worrying about things that I've never been asked to give my heart to. I would rather give my heart to the one who is enough for me. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to just take a moment of silent reflection where you bring your heart to God, and the best you can declare that he is enough for you today. So God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't even, we don't even have enough words in the English language and human comprehension to even be remotely aware of how good you are to us and how much you are for us. God, Will you help us name my fears, our fears, that there's not enough or that ultimately you're not enough? Will you help us be more grateful, God, with what you've already given to us, to not take for granted the gifts that you've given to us, but to name them and give credit and glory to you? We help stir in us right now, God, the next step that we need to take, whatever it is that we need to, like we need to do to put you at the center, to seek you first, and to put you at the center of our lives so that we can see you provide in ways that we never could have dreamed of on our own before. So God, we come to you with open attentiveness right now. And we choose to seek you first and to declare that you are enough for us today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives. It's in your name that we pray and reflect and respond. Amen.